Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi friends and welcome back to another episode of Open House, a fresh, fun and real podcast where I, Louise Rumble, invite you inside the therapy room with me to learn from some of the very best psychologists, therapists and sex and intimacy coaches that I have found. No topic is off the table, no question too juicy and no experience too shameful. At Open House, everyone is welcome. And we're on a mission to develop a new mental health experience for all, because we believe that true happiness is coming home to yourself under the layers and layers of you that society has told you to be. As ever, please remember that this podcast is for entertainment purposes only, and you should always seek professional medical help when necessary. Now, let's get into it, and I'll see you on the other side. Hi, my friends, and welcome back to another episode of the Open House podcast. Recording this one with Dr. Janice Webb was so eye-opening for me, and I thought that dropping it before the holidays hit was the perfect time. I know that going home for the holidays can be really painful and very triggering for some of us. We have the family unit, the family dynamics, and then the dynamic and the story of each individual within the house and the family. And then we have the labels like the busy mom or the absent dad or the difficult sibling. And then we have the way that all of these labels and stories trigger each other in the family. And I think that when we talk about the holiday season particularly when we're talking about it being difficult, I think we're often talking about the loud noise, the uncomfortable triggers and the overwhelm of the family unit, but not really the silence of feeling left out, feeling overlooked, feeling on the edge of the family, or maybe just not feeling all of the holiday feels that we are supposed to feel. For many of us, myself included, you won't be alone if you feel like you've been on the outside of a family unit your whole life. Or maybe that you need to suppress who you really are or put on a mask or a front or a face to fit in and to let everything go smoothly. The more and more work that I've done, the more I've been able to learn who I am as my true authentic me and how I can show up as myself without a mask. But it's not easy. And feeling a little disconnected from the people that are supposed to love you the most can be a really jarring feeling. I'm so excited to share today's episode with you because I cannot tell you how many people have told me that they had good parents or a good childhood and no major trauma, but they still struggle to just really 
feel and to find that fairy tale love story or find those friendships where they can really be themselves and trust that those people love them for exactly who they are. And in today's episode, I start to understand why this is. It's because of something invisible and not spoken about, but something that is incredibly powerful and that can shape the life of so many of us. The truth is, is this distinction that we can have had a good childhood without parents that beat us or hurt us or abandoned us, but we can have a childhood that didn't involve emotional attunement, one that didn't involve processing of our emotions, one that didn't involve space for us to communicate how we feel or cry or shout or say that we're lonely or that we hate it when mum and dad fight or we feel sad and rejected that dad goes to work all the time. Often our own parents and their reactions taught us that our emotions were too big, too heavy or too much of a burden. This might have been explicitly with language like big boys or big girls don't cry, but it can also be through our own perception of their body language when we were communicating our emotions. Over time, so many of us started to internalize this and we learned to keep our feelings to ourselves. What I've learned through extensive therapy and through hosting this podcast is if we're not taught to attune to our feelings and emotions in childhood, which so few of us are, we actually don't learn how to do that in adulthood. And when we can't attune to our feelings and emotions in adulthood, we live life disconnected, going through the motions and maybe just distracting and avoiding the discomfort that sits within us that we never learn how to make friends with. If we can't meet ourselves in how we're feeling, and I'm talking more than just I'm sad or I'm angry, the real nuance of human experience, then we can't step into real intimacy with another because to build a deep, heartfelt partnership with someone else, we need to be able to communicate on so many levels about so many things. When we don't feel our own emotions fully, we're never able to feel or hold space for the emotions of another. They will be very overwhelming for us. When we aren't taught to sit with or process our own emotions, we might attract unconsciously partners who don't require us to bring any emotion to the table. When we're told that our emotions are too much, we're likely to develop into a person that doesn't share our truth because we think it's burdensome. What I've learned is that no matter what your childhood unit taught you, so many humans in today's society learn to internalize our feelings without ever really connecting with them. And I personally am of the belief that this is why there is such a huge epidemic of chronic illness today where our body is holding the weight of emotions that were never expressed fully. I know that for me, this has been a huge part of my own journey, exploring how my chronic pain disorder has been tied to emotional suppression. But I think something that people don't talk about is this feeling of emotional numbness and emptiness. We're going to get into all of that and more today, but enough from me. Today's episode isn't holiday specific. I hope that whenever you listen to it, it's going to help you through the holiday season and into the rest of your life. And I think that this might just be the episode that helps you realize you might have been more disconnected from yourself and those around you than you initially thought. Finally, if you relate to everything in this episode and more, and you've always felt an outsider and different to everyone around you, I would also urge you to look into diagnoses around being a highly sensitive person and even neurodivergency. I cannot tell you the number of people that I've spoken with over the last few years who, when they got their diagnosis of ADHD or autism, that they finally realized that they actually were different all along and that's why they felt like an outsider or like that they had to mask to fit in. And that actually getting this diagnosis was such a beautiful step for them into owning the truth of who they really are. 
most of all, whatever has brought you to this episode, I want you to know that you are so freaking worthy of love, care, adoration, partnership, and so much more. And by listening to this episode, you are taking one step closer to it. It's my biggest honor to be able to keep you company during this holiday season. And if you want to come and join us in our open house premium community, there's over 800 people in a private community area, plus the therapists who are here to keep you company this holiday season. I love you guys. Let's get into it. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Open House Podcast. Today is one that I'm really, really excited to share with you. We have been trying to get this in the diary for many, many months. And the reason that I have not let it slip is because this is something that so many of us need to hear. And time and time again, I hear from people, my parents were good people. They didn't do anything wrong to me. So why do I feel this way. And anyone listening knows my own personal story, but Dr. Janice doesn't. And for anyone that's new listening, I have a father with autism spectrum disorder. And it wasn't until I went to therapy around 30 years old that I started to unpack how that has shaped me as a human being more than I could ever have had any idea. And it's still something today that I am continuing to unpack. So we are talking about this concept of childhood emotional neglect. And Dr. Janice is a renowned clinical psychologist. She's an author. And truthfully, she's pioneering this field around CEN. So yes, there is this big misconception that just because you had two parents who provided for you and didn't abuse you, that you should be fine and you have no reason to be damaged, no reason to be upset. And I think my first question for you, Dr. Janice, is that childhood emotional neglect probably still sounds very dramatic to some people that are listening. Could you just tell me a little bit how it's maybe different to that physical neglect that most people will think of? Yeah, it's amazing how often the two get confused. It also gets lumped in with abuse a lot, childhood abuse and neglect. But really, physical neglect is when a parent doesn't provide enough food or a coat in the winter or shoes, things like that, physical needs of the child. Emotional neglect is simply when the parents fail to notice when the child is having a feeling or needs emotional connection or support and fails to provide it. And that is what I've been trying to call attention to for the last 10 plus years since my first book came out. It's so invisible. People don't remember it from their childhoods. And yet it's sort of like a black cloud hanging over them through their entire life or a gray cloud at least. So what you're saying is that it's really that failure to act. Is that if the child was crying, they ignored them? Or could it even be more minute than that? Like the child puts their hand up for a cuddle or for some kind of bid for connection and the parent maybe doesn't even realize that they're doing that because of their own emotional processing or maybe, I guess, so many other things. Can it be big moments and small moments? Yeah. In fact, in a lot of really good, otherwise caring families, it happens in very, very subtle ways so that even if other adults are in the room, they're not even going to notice it. For example, a child just looks a little sad or withdrawn, could be a 12-year-old, could be a two-year-old, and the parent just goes on as if there's nothing happening, maybe driving the kid from soccer practice back to school, off to stay with friends, whatever. 
but just fails to notice that their child is having an emotion. Or the child could be really angry and the parent just says, get over it, or acts like the child isn't angry or gives a very inappropriate response to the anger. All of those things are ignoring the child's emotional needs and not responding to them. Do you think it's also fair to say that just the general environment of the home can lead to this? For example, if it's not like a warm, safe space to cry, and maybe the child one time was told, big girls don't cry or big boys don't cry, and then they learned that expressing those emotions was like not bright. Does that also fit into this? Absolutely. And it doesn't even have to be an active act of where the parent says, don't cry. It can be just a subtle discouragement of crying. Things I mentioned before, like just not responding to it or ignoring it or just saying, whatever, you'll get over this and just failing to engage with the child. Basically, the message that the child gets is feelings are a problem for my parents and they are a burden and I need to hide them. And so what the child's brain automatically does for them is push their feelings down and away to hide them from the parents. And they end up hiding them from themselves as well. And they take on the parents' point of view that feelings are a burden and a problem. And then you can go through your whole adult life treating your feelings the way that your parents treated your feelings. That is the essence of emotional neglect. Wow. And how many people will be able to resonate with that listening to this, particularly in adult relationships or even in the family dynamic when you were labeled the one that was too emotional or the one that was too much or the one that handled everything really easily and suppressed everything. That is so fascinating. And I guess it's difficult because many people will probably not sit here as adults and remember those micro moments or the repetition of those micro moments. And can you talk me through this experiment that you speak about where the brain logs things that did happen rather than what didn't happen and how that ties into childhood emotional neglect? Yeah. Well, sometimes when I'm speaking to an audience, I'll ask them, close your eyes and think of something that happened in your childhood. Everyone can think of something that happened in their childhood. And then I'll say, now think of something that didn't happen in your childhood. And they're sitting there with their eyes closed and they fly open because it's like, what? It doesn't compute because it's a non-event. When your parents fail to respond, you as a child don't realize that they were supposed to. You assume this is how it is in the world. This is the right way. And you don't take note of it. Our brains generally don't record things that fail to happen. We record things that happen. And we have those tapes in our head. But this is why so many people experience childhood emotional neglect and have no idea. Wow, it's like a silent epidemic really, isn't it? It's unfortunate. And yes, very much so. I know in your work that you sort of differentiate between having your emotional needs invalidated and having your emotional needs not met. Could you just recap on like both of those two categories so people listening can maybe understand like, oh yeah, that was me or like, oh no, that wasn't me, but that was. Sure. So having emotional invalidation is a kind of a extreme version of emotional neglect of the purest form of emotional neglect. Invalidation involves telling a child that their emotions are wrong or excessive or don't make any sense. And parents have all kinds of ways of doing that. 
sending a child to their room for being sad or angry, for example, is a way to do that. You're basically invalidating the child's feelings. Emotional neglect, on the other hand, can be a much more passive sort of event where you're not actively invalidating your child's feelings. You just fail to act on them and notice them and respond to them and validate them. And that failure to act is the purest form of emotional neglect. And can this happen from just one parent? Like it doesn't have to be that both parents do the same thing. Can it just be one parent that can shape you with this neglect, even if the other one was perhaps not neglectful in any way? I think it takes both parents to have a really extreme effect. But I think if it's the parent that you're closest to, it can definitely leave you with the signs of emotional neglect and the symptoms. And if they're both like weakly present, you can still end up with it. So it's a matter of not just the number of parents doing it, it's also how extreme is it for each parent. Mm, Interesting. And I think talking about signs and symptoms, let's get into how this shows up in adulthood. And I think that one of the reasons that I think this is so important is because like we said, it's often so difficult to have any conscious recollection of these things. I mean, sure, some people will, but there will also be a lot of people who do not remember consciously those small micro moments. And I know that you talk in your work about there being overarching themes of how an adult can feel. And there are things like emotional numbness, a feeling of being empty, low self-worth, low self-esteem, self-blame, difficulty maintaining or deepening relationships. Let's start with emotional numbness and this feeling of being empty, because I think that your work is really the only work that I have come across that really directly faces this feeling of emptiness head on. And it's so difficult if you experience it. It is so hard to verbalize and so hard to articulate. Yes, it really is. And it's incredibly, you know, you would think if it's numbness, it wouldn't be painful, right? Numb and pain are two different things. But emotional numbness is not like physical numbness. It's actually very painful. And some people, it's the same sort of phenomenon, but different people experience it differently. Some people say, I feel empty. Some people say, I feel numb. Some people say, I feel nothing and it feels wrong. So you might use different words to explain the feeling, but basically it's caused by having your feelings walled off. Remember how we just talked about walling one's feelings off as a child because your parents were giving you the message indirectly, probably, that your feelings were a burden and a problem or even something to be ashamed of. So your feelings are walled off on the other side of this wall. Not that you're not having them. They're just happening outside of your awareness. And so when your feelings are walled off like that, you don't really experience them the way that you're meant to. And your body knows. Your body knows that something that is vital, that should be grounding you and filling you and connecting you is missing. And you feel it as in the form of numbness or emptiness. It's so interesting because I think in my personal situation, the word that I would use is more like just disconnected from that true emotional, like shared experience perhaps with my father. And one of my most painful memories is because of the emotional dynamic in my household, I remember, and I will always remember, because I think it's the perfect explanation of this point. I left my grandma 
in the hospice for the last time ever. So my father's mother and we went to the car, myself and my father, and I didn't cry. All I wanted to do was hysterically cry. I was, it was the saddest moment of my life saying goodbye to the grandma that I was so close to, but I just couldn't. I couldn't have those emotions in front of my father because I couldn't make him feel the discomfort that I knew that my emotions would make him feel. So do you think it can show up in two ways? Because for me, I'm either very good at suppressing my emotions or I'm very bad. They kind of like come flying over the top. Would you say that it can show up in two ways, like either intense emotional suppression or emotional suppression that fails and then everything bubbles over the top? Like how do you see those big reactions versus no reactions? Interestingly enough, they're two sides of the same coin and they go together for a lot of people. It depends how strong your wall is that's blocking off your feelings. So if your wall is just high and thick and no emotions are getting through, you will very, very rarely have an emotion. And you'll only have it if your feelings get strong enough on the other side of the wall to come breaking through. And then you'll be flooded with it. And it might attach itself to inappropriate things that are not even matching your feelings or the intensity of your feelings. If your wall is not so high and thick, then it's easier for your feelings to break through. But you end up going back and forth from feeling nothing to feeling a lot to feeling nothing to feeling a lot. That is so interesting because one of my very best friends never cries has never cried, is actively wants to cry, is working on it in therapy. And that just makes so much sense now with that wall. The wall must just be so hard and so strong. Whereas mine's a pretty weak wall. Like it's there, but then it just, all the emotion just like busts through when I'm like finally on my own or whatever. So that is fascinating. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I'd love to know how either this emotional numbness or just the childhood emotional neglect in general can show up in adulthood as this difficulty maintaining or deepening relationships, because I think it's something that people can really, really relate to. Yes, I think it affects people greatly in their relationships, both romantic and friendship-wise. The reason is because when your emotions are walled off and you don't have full access to them, you really don't have full access to your deepest, most authentic self. It doesn't mean that you're fake or that you're not authentic. It just means that you don't have access to this richest resource that connects you to other people. Because really, it's feelings that help a friendship or a relationship 
deepen. It's feelings that are the glue that binds people together and the drive and the passion that makes you want to see someone and be with them and commit to them and be friends with them. So if you don't have access to that rich resource or full access, you're limited in how much of that you can do. And so many people who have childhood emotional neglect have told me that they feel a real lack of reward in their friendships and their relationships. Spouses complain about people with CEN, about their spouses who have CEN not being really fully emotionally there. Wow, that's fascinating. And this is a slightly off-piste question. I don't know if you have an answer to it. But do you see or have you seen in the literature anywhere that childhood emotional neglect is more directly tied to, say, the anxious attachment style or the avoidant attachment style? No clear research that I've seen, but I can answer that from my own experience that I think it's more likely to have an avoidant attachment style, or maybe we'll invent a new attachment style, which is the undemanding attachment style, because people with childhood emotional neglect, we all sort of recreate our relationship that we had with our parents as our internalized version of what love should be, because that's how the human brain works. And so if you grew up with a sort of emotionally watered down version of love, then that is what you will seek and what you'll be able to provide in your adult relationship. People with CEN were taught not to expect and ask for emotional connection and richness and reward in relationships. So they tend to not ask for much or allow themselves to need much. Mm, That is so interesting. And does that tie into these points around low self-esteem and self-worth that I know you talk about often in your work? Because putting two and two together, one would assume that if we sort of internalize this belief that we're not worthy of deep emotional love and support and assistance, that maybe we would take that on as it being about us. How does that tie into low self-worth and low self-esteem? Well, if you think about how emotions are the most deeply personal biological expression of who we are as a human being, and if you grow up with your parents really just ignoring that deep expression of yourself and your parents never even get to know that part of you because they're not even aware that it's there or they're not paying attention, then the message is that deepest part of yourself is either unacceptable or unimportant, irrelevant, not good enough. And so a lot of people with CEN, children who are growing up this way, walk away with the deep sense that they're just not good enough or not worthy of notice and of being responded to. And then you take that forward, sort of like always feeling one down in your relationships, like the other person is always more important than you. Their needs are more important. Their feelings are more important because you deeply down feel like you're not. And do you think that ties into those beliefs of everyone always leaves, no one's always going to stay? Have you seen that in practice? Does Do people catastrophize the future in any way? Or is it more of a silent burden rather than a big, loud catastrophe? Or is there no real answer to that question? I think that's a great question. And I think it is the silent assumption usually it's not a big traumatic 
sort of expectation of being abandoned, that usually comes from some version of abandonment happening during childhood. Yeah, so interesting. And something that I've also read from your work and that you've also touched on is the tie-ins to this almost like difficulty with self-care. And I would love to understand what's going on there because I myself have been in this category. There have been many years where I would drive myself into the ground with work, substance abuse and too much exercise, not eating enough, eating issues, just the very typical, not very kind, caring, soft relationship with myself. I'd love to understand why other people listening might think, oh yeah, self-care is just not a part of my life. Yeah. So the self-care piece comes from two things. One is that most emotionally neglectful parents, because they're not paying attention to the child's emotions and emotional needs, miss lots of the child's other kinds of needs as well, including the need for structure, discipline, the kind of discipline that a child can internalize that becomes their own future self-discipline. Sit right here until your homework is done. Come in from playing by four so that you can be at the dinner table at seven because our whole family is going to have dinner together. A lot of emotionally neglectful families don't really have those skills or value those kinds of things. So that's one piece of the self-care problem. The other part is goes back to what we've been talking about where the parents are giving the child inadvertently probably the message that they don't matter. And when you feel deep down on an emotional level like you don't matter, it's just yourself. You feel like yourself doesn't matter. And if you feel like you don't matter on some deep level, it's very hard for you to prioritize your own needs. And a lot of self-care requires you to decide, I'm going to go to the gym or cook something healthy for myself or get enough sleep, even if it means I'm going to fail someone else's needs or I'm not going to get something else done. It's really hard to make those choices if you don't believe that you matter. Oh, yeah. And those beliefs are deeply hardwired into us, into our biology. And I think that's where I'd love to go next, because in the first part of this episode, we've touched on all things psychological and how we can think about this and how it can show up. But what we love to do on the Open House podcast is help people to understand how really deeply this can go into our biology, our being, our psyche, et cetera, et cetera. Can you tell me a little bit around how this is impacting us on a biological level? Does it impact our brain structure and brain function? What is going on at a biological level? Yeah, so there was this really great study done in 2015 at Duke University, and they looked at the brains. They scanned the brains of a whole bunch of children who were growing up in emotionally neglectful homes. And then they rescanned their brains and they scanned a lot of kids too who were not. And then they scanned the same kids' brains later on when they were in their teens. What they discovered in the childhood scans was a lack of development of the ventral striatum in the brain which is the part of the brain that is responsible for experiencing reward. And they also saw this in the teenagers' brains, that even all through teens, it hadn't quite developed properly. And so the reward piece just means not being able to take full joy in things and really register happiness and excitement and reward. And I believe that's because their emotions are so tamped down 
even indirectly in the subtle ways we've been talking about. It prevents you from having full access to those positive feelings as well. The good news is once a person starts to give themselves those things and value those feelings and pay attention to them, you can nurture your own brain and develop that part of your brain because our brains are incredibly elastic and able to adjust to the feedback that we put back, put into them. I agree. And I think that's one of the key points of this podcast as well is empowering people to understand that change is possible. Your biology does not determine your future. With neuroplasticity and rewiring, there are so many new beliefs that you can set, which in turn can set so many different behavioral responses and coping mechanisms. From reading your work, I've learned that even if our little child may not have felt stressed, our biology and our stress response would have been dysregulated, which would have impacted our wider biology. Do you think it's fair to say that even if we don't remember things, our body was very stressed by these small moments or repeated patterns of childhood emotional neglect? Yes, absolutely. I think the word stressed is very true in a general sense, but to put a more specific word in it, I think the child feels a feeling of rejection or deprivation or not being good enough or feeling alone. I think that's what children really feel in that moment of neglect happening. And I think that does get wired into the nervous system. And in terms of anyone that sat here today thinking, I'm depressed, is that something that you see in practice, that people have tried lots of things, can't really get to the core of it, and then you help them understand that actually the core all along was this CEN? Is that something that happens in practice? It absolutely is with both depression and anxiety, because when your feelings are walled off, one of the unfortunate results of that is it makes it really difficult for you to work through your feelings when you don't have access to them. Basically impossible. So some people who are depressed, it really is because their feelings are just so walled off that they haven't been able to access them, let themselves feel those feelings, and face them and address them. And if a lot of your walled-off feelings are fear-related, that can turn into anxiety and you become a more anxious person. And if most of them are sadness-related or loss or, you know, that feeling of rejection that I was just describing that children feel, then you're more likely to experience depression as an adult. But either way, the solution is to start reaching out to those feelings on the other side of the wall, break that wall down very gradually at whatever pace is comfortable, and start to feel those feelings. And it can be very effective to do that, even for people who have been on multiple antidepressants for many years. So if someone is listening to this and they're thinking, oh yeah, this is me, like I need to go on this journey, I'm really resonating with so many things that they were saying, and maybe they're also feeling like they're just unfulfilled. Is that something that you see? Do you see people just feeling like, they just generally feel unfulfilled in their life. It absolutely is because, again, that rich resource that connects and drives and makes us motivated and interested and involved with other people in the world is just not there enough for us. So that makes you feel very unfulfilled, yes. 
Let's get into, I think, the key parts of where people need to go from here. You've said the first one, which is starting to tap into those feelings, starting to acknowledge and break down the wall. As you reclaim your feelings and start to feel more of all of your feelings, both positive and negative, that is the stuff of life. And that is what makes you feel filled and fulfilled and more connected and grounded. And that feeling of connection to other people and to yourself is really the meaning of what it means to be alive. Yeah, I agree with you wholeheartedly. And I think that coping mechanisms is also something that you talk about, as well as starting to get in touch with your feelings, which obviously is very difficult if you've never done that. What kind of coping mechanisms do you see people living with when they live with CEN? I see a lot of avoidance. I think it's very common for people with CEN because they weren't taught any emotional coping skills as children. The easiest thing for a child to do who doesn't know how to cope with the feeling is avoid. And so growing into adulthood, it can become your biggest coping mechanism. And you might avoid things that will make you anxious, avoid things that will be upsetting, avoid conflict, avoid problems, avoid people. So that's probably the biggest one. I think also try to escape once you have a feeling is a very common coping mechanism so that you don't have to, feeling does break through. You just can't sit with it. So you don't, you run, 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 run. We all know somebody who's like this, who runs, runs, runs all the time. Yeah. So I think that's a way to avoid and escape one's feelings. And that's exactly what I was going to ask you. And for anyone who's not watching on video, I put my hand in the air when Dr. Janice said that, because I wanted to just clarify this point around avoidance. I think it's important for people to understand that you can avoid discomfort and avoid emotional experiencing, not just by shutting down totally. You can actually step into the avoidance through doing rather than just not doing. And that's been me my whole life, like always busy, working nonstop, driving myself to burnout, exercising six times a week, go, go, go. And a huge part of my healing journey has been learning to sit with what is going on underneath that, in the silence, in the moments when it is just you and your body. So I think that's really important for anyone listening to ask are you always running? And I love the word escape that you used as well. I wanted to ask you whether you see any correlation between escape and substance abuse or substance usage. Well, I've had a theory for a long time that most people who are addicts, there's a lot of talk about how most addicts have some trauma in their childhood. I think that most addicts have emotional neglect in their childhood as well. And I think that is all it takes to make a person become an addict. Because if your emotions are ignored enough and your feelings are walled off enough, you can become so uncomfortable within yourself that the only thing that makes you feel better is alcohol or drugs. Yeah. uh, A good friend of mine, a crystal meth addict, ex, she's now very clean and doing amazing things in this world. She said that ultimately it was loneliness that drove her into that addiction. And when she understood that connection was the solution, if loneliness was the driver. And as we come to wrap up, I'd love to just end on a note of hope. 
Not just that you can rewire your brain, not just that you can start to tap into uncomfortable feelings, but what else do people really need to be understanding? Is it that they need to be learning to make friends with their own nervous system and that they can do that? Is it that they need to find community to be a part of and that can help? Is there any other or are there any other tips and tricks from your side that can be really profoundly helpful for someone who has gone through this? Yes. I think one thing that anyone can do at any time is to pause for a moment, close their eyes, and ask yourself, what am I feeling right now? And then tune into your body because all feelings are in your body. And there is, in my first book, Running on Empty, there's a description of that exercise in a lot more detail. And being able to just do that, even if you come up with nothing for the first 150 or more times that you do it is okay because you're still knocking on that wall. Every time you do it, you're taking a little chip out of the wall and you just have to keep doing it, tuning in. And that sends messages to your nervous system that you're doing things differently. It helps rewire you and it starts gradually letting you access your feelings. The second thing is when you start having feelings, learning the emotion skills. You might require a therapist. And I have a list of 800 therapists all across the world on my website who are trained in treating childhood emotional neglect. So that's an option too. Yes, we will definitely link that in the show notes as well as all of your info um, and books as well, because all the time people are asking, where can I find a therapist that is good to work with, et cetera, et cetera. So we will link that. Yeah. One other thing, I also have online programs on my website that are geared to helping people recover. So there are several to choose from that people can go on and look at. Some of them are free. So there are lots of resources there. Yeah, I agree. There are a lot of resources and I get great emails from you and there's just a lot of information out there. So even if you are unable to access one-to-one therapy right now, for whatever reason, there is a lot of this that you can do on your own and you're not alone on this journey. And I think as we come to wrap up, I am not a parent, I am not a mother, but I know that some people listening to this episode will be. There may also be some fathers, even though we have a very, very, very female audience. I would love to just talk to those people who might be sitting here thinking, oh shit, I'm messing up my children, or oh my God, I'm already doing this, or oh God, I have to do something differently. What advice would you have for them in terms of the day-to-day parenting of how to start parenting in a way that can help avoid CEN rather than contribute to it? Yeah, this is one of my favorite questions because I think it's so important. And the things that you can do if you're a parent, number one, work on your own CEN because the more you change, the more this will just soak down to your children like, a sponge like osmosis, it will just trickle right down to them. The second thing you can do is make a concerted effort to pay more attention to your children's feelings and focus on their feelings more than their behavior because their feelings are what's driving their behavior. And the third is make a concerted effort to talk about feelings and use feeling words with your kids because this helps them understand that it's okay to talk about emotions and that feelings are not something to be ashamed of or be avoided. And what are your thoughts on 
the emotion wheel. Because I know even a lot of my friends in therapy, they'll start therapy and the therapist will say, how do you feel? And they'll say, I actually don't know. And they start to realize that they have not been tapping into any of these emotions their whole life. What are your thoughts on using that both with children or with your children, but also as adults? Do you think that's a helpful way that people can start to tap into what am I actually feeling and what is going on beneath that? Absolutely. I think anything that helps you identify what you're feeling is a help. And in the back of Running on Empty, I have a list of emotion words that is pages long. There are so many in the English language. It's incredible how many there are that can help you identify what you're feeling in very subtle gradations of different ways on every feeling group. And the better you can do that, whether you're using a wheel or one of those magnet sets that has all the emotions on it, whatever it takes. Absolutely. 100% yes. Yes. I love that. And I just think sometimes we're like, oh, I'm so sad or I'm angry. We never get into the nuance of how many incredible shades of emotion there are. And I was really, really, really frustrated this morning about something. And actually I sat down and I thought, no, there's something under the frustration. What is that? And the deeper that I went, I felt loneliness and I felt sadness, but it was just showing up as frustration and anger. So I think it's so important to understand that the labels that we might put on something just doesn't necessarily mean that they're right. My final point, which I'm sure you'll agree with, is that we can be the change that we want to see in the world. We can change these generational cycles of how our family communicates. And even my mom now, she says, yeah. I never asked you once when you were a child, how does that make you feel? And that was really powerful for us. And it also is powerful for me knowing that one day, if I ever am a mum, that will be like such a key part of my relationship with them, as well as allowing them to feel. I feel like I've gone through so much emotional suppression that actually just to allow people to let it come up and hold space for them when they do that will be a profound part of my parenting plan. But thank you so much. This has been such an important episode. We've never, ever spoken about this on the podcast at all. And is there anything else that you want to add before we wrap up? Well, what you just shared there warms my heart. That is my biggest goal in the world is to help people feel the way that you do. So I think that's wonderful. Anyone who's listening who is not sure about emotional neglect and whether it applies to them, can go to my website and take the emotional neglect test. It's 26 yes, no answers. And it's very quick to take and it can give you an idea of whether you should go ahead and learn more about this. Yes. And for any of our premium subscribers, we will drop that link into the house so you can just get direct access to that. But thank you so much. This has been a really important episode. I feel like we've packed so much in. I'm so grateful for your time and thank you again for all you are doing in this world. It is so needed and so noticed. It's been great to be here, Louise. Thank you. Thank you. Hello, I'm Mark. And I'm Bethan. And we're the hosts of Seeing Red. We deliver intriguing, terrifying and dumbfounding true crime stories each and every week. With a focus on cases from the UK, we do occasionally venture overseas. We've covered everything from the mysterious death of professional footballer Emiliano Sala to the attempted murder of Victoria Silias, a woman who fell from the sky and lived to tell the tale. 
Binge our bulging back catalogue and join us every Wednesday for a new episode of Seeing Red.